Kof. Dense circle. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord. I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me. I will keep your statutes. I will rise before dawn and cry for help. I will put my hope in your word. My eyes open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Promise it. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your thoughts. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Yes, he has. My goodness. Let's see here. I've got a couple things. First, I was going to say we should pray for Graham over in Scotland. He was back in the hospital and... Poor guy has suffered so much, but I saw a post just about an hour ago. He's out of the hospital. He's still, you know, in bad shape, but we'll, we'll pray for him. But uh, he uh, at least is out of the hospital, which is, you know, seems like every time you go into the hospital, you end up getting sick or sicker. So, um, And then we have, um, just so you all know, I wasn't going to say anything until it was almost ready, and it is almost ready. He's got everything done except... Uh, just uh, we have a superior word. What do you call it when you have a remote church? Um, you know what I'm saying? Satellite. satellite. We have a satellite church over in Iligan City in the Philippines, which is pretty wonderful. Yeah, the pastor over there, Dennis, has uh, uh, got a superior word satellite, and so they'll be online with us or watching afterward uh, at each, you know, Bible class, every prophecy update, and every sermon. So. Uh, he may be doing it today. I don't think so. Uh, he had a little bit of a delay, but it's all paid for. Everything is done. They've got a sign up. They've got, you know, it's very nice. So I just thought that was kind of wonderful, and, and uh, I'd let you all know about that. And uh, let's see here. Linda is still sick, so we want to keep her in prayer. I didn't realize that. She's been posting on Facebook, and so, you know, she reads a daily devotional, so I assumed that she was okay. But apparently Linda's got what Hedico had, and she's uh, they're both on antibiotics, but Hedico is better. And uh, so we'll put them in prayer and we'll read this real quickly. This day in Christian history is the 19th of July. It says, this is one of my favorite people in Christianity. I just, I love this guy. It's an old familiar story. People couldn't get along with one another. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was born in Dresden, Germany in a pietist noble family in 1700. The Pietists were Lutherans who sought to know Jesus personally and to live a godly life. At the age of six, Zinzendorf committed his life to Jesus. In childlike simplicity, he wrote love letters to Jesus and threw them out the window of the castle. At 10, he went to school in Halle, the center of German Pietism. He completed his education at the University of Wittenberg and in 1721 purchased his grandmother's estate containing the village of Berthelsdorf, I guess. Soon thereafter, a leader of the Moravians, the spiritual descendants of John Hus, came and asked for him, asked him if oppressed Moravians could take refuge in his estate. Zinzendorf agreed, and in December 1722, the first ten Moravians arrived. They were given a plot of land that was named, anybody know the name of it? Herrenhut. Okay, well, I just didn't know if you knew his story or not, uh, meaning the Lord's Watch. 
because the pietist pastor of the Lutheran Church in Bethelsdorf shared the Moravians' vision in his preaching, Lutheran pietists soon became part of Herrenhut, as did Reformed and Anabaptists. By 1727, the population had reached 300, but divisions were arising. There were language barriers as well as squabbles between the Moravians and the Lutherans over the church liturgy. Zinzendorf, determined to not let Herrenhut destroy itself, moved there himself going house to house trying to bring unity to the community. On July 9th, 1727, Sinzendorf organized all the adults into a spiritual bands of two or three. He grouped people with natural affinity for one another and appointed one of them as leader. They began to meet together regularly, pray, exhort, and share one another's burdens. The people in Herrenhut saw differences start to fade as they focused on one another. On Sunday, August 13th, the pastor of the Lutheran Church gave an address, early morning address at Herrenhut to prepare them for the Lord's Supper. The people then walked to the church in Bethelsdorf. The service began with the singing of the hymn, Deliver Me, O God, from all my bonds and fetters. Then everyone knelt and sang, My soul before thee prostrate falls, to thee its source my spirit flies. The congregation became gripped with such emotion that the sound of weeping nearly drowned out the singing. Several men prayed with great fervor. Zinzendorf led the congregation in a prayer of confession for their earlier broken fellowship. Then they partook of the Lord's Supper together after the service. People who had previously been fighting embraced one another, pledging to love one another from that time on. The residents of Herrenhut saw that day as their Pentecost. Soon another and around the clock prayer ministry began at Herrenhut and continued for 100 years. The Moravians became the first missionary-sending Protestant church. When Zinzendorf died 30 years later, 226 missionaries had been sent out from Herrenhut to St. Croix, Greenland, Lapland, Georgia, Suriname, Guinea, South Africa, Algeria, Ceylon, Romania, and Constantinople. One of every 60 of the Moravians became a missionary. The day before he died, Zinzendorf asked a Moravian friend, did you ever suppose that in the beginning that the Savior would do as we now really see in the various Moravian settlements amongst the heathen? What a formidable caravan from our church already stands around the Lamb. The next day, Count von Zinzendorf joined that caravan, adorning the Lamb upon his throne. Adoring the Lamb upon his throne. And they ask, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a coincidence that the Moravian Pentecost was preceded by weeks of earnest prayer on that first Protestant church to emphasize missions was the church with uh, the 100-year prayer meeting. What is God's prayer for you in reaching the world for Christ? And in Matthew 9, 38 through 37, it says, the harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers for his fields. So that's Zinzendorf. One of the stories that uh, I, I did a report on him in college, and one of the stories that, uh, uh, about him is that he chose a couple people and sent them off to, it was the islands, uh, you know, past the Bahamas. I can't remember the name of them. But anyway, they had just discovered these things, and they were sending people there. And he said, you two are going to go, and you're going to, you know, uh, evangelize these people. And um, they, uh, he gave them like just enough money to get to the boat and that was it. And off they went. And uh, they got report later that they died. So a couple more people, he sent them off and until they got the job done. And just to show that he wasn't above that, he went to the same place himself 
and he learned at the time by then French Creole was being spoken. And so he uh, learned French Creole and on the first anniversary of his time being there, I think he was there for two years, he did his first sermon in French Creole for the people of the island. So uh, it, he wasn't one to just say, you do this and I'm not going to do it. Even though he had all this money, he devoted all of it to the Lord and he, he followed through along with what he had done. So, And I may have blown that. It's been years since I, I read that and did that report. But anyway, he was he was a real hero of uh, missions, a real hero, the, the one who really established too. the what? Oh, yeah. Very, very diplomatic guy. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll get into Romans. We have Article 15 of the Chicago Statement of Faith. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. No doubt about that. If you read the Bible, Jesus says that it's inspired. He clings to one word. And uh, when he's debating with the Pharisees, you know, when he says, you say that you are gods, and he said, hey, one word he debates over. And he also does this again when he cites uh, David, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, okay, um, uh, yeah, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he, he argues over the very structure of that. He says, well, how can he be uh, Lord if he, David, or how can he be David's descendant if he calls him Lord? Anyway, or something. I, I might have blown that just a little bit there, but you understand that he would argue over single words of Scripture. So no doubt about that. And then they deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or to any natural limitation of his humanity. What accommodation means is that somebody says, well, what about this? And so he accommodates his audience. He says, well, we're going to make an allegory out of that, or we're going to accommodate you into a cultural sense, which people do with issues in the Bible all the time. One of my favorite we were talking about just a while ago is women not teaching or having authority over men. And they say, well, that was written to the church of Ephesus for a certain reason, but you're accommodating your audience. We don't accommodate with the scripture. You take scripture in context, you take it as it is written, and unless there is a reason to say that this is cultural only, you are to apply it to your faith. Now, one of the things that Paul writes as prescriptive, and so I, I would have to ask you, what do you think about that? As he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? Is that something that we would normally do in America? Okay, so it was very cultural to greet one another with a kiss, and it still is in the Middle East, okay? In Japan, if you go up and you hug your pastor, he's probably gonna have a heart attack and die, right? They never get close to each other, they bow reverently, and that would be a holy kiss in Japan. So there are some things that even though it's a prescriptive passage, you have to use it from a cultural standpoint. You have to, okay? People don't have a holy kiss in some countries. Uh, there are many things that you have to be wary of, but the idea of greeting another in that fashion stands, okay? In other words, you are to greet your brothers in a holy manner. Okay, so that is prescriptive, and I would say that the holy kiss is cultural. But there are certain things that you cannot say that's cultural only. When it says that a man isn't to have long hair, we have to understand what's going on with that. It's a long study, it's very involved, but it is not a cultural, oh, that was the Corinthians and blah, blah, blah. That applies, it is a prescriptive writing, and it is for the church age. So anyway, we don't accommodate our audiences. Jesus was not accommodating those he spoke to or any natural limitation of his humanity, okay? Scripture cannot be dismissed based on that. Absolutely not. 
Um, so uh, there you go. That's uh, Article 15 of the Chicago Statement of Faith. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer really quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet here and to uh, open your word, to share your word, and to uh, look into the book of Romans once again. We thank you for this wonderful treasure. It is so marvelous to just uh, talk about it, to discuss it with others, to get emails about it, and to talk back and forth, and help us to uh, handle it properly and to be uh, careful in how we respond to others. Sometimes we get our uh, uh, ideas about what the scripture is saying and we might be a little forceful and so help us to not be that way but to teach in love and to correct in love as well and lord we certainly pray for linda and for hitiko and we pray for graham over in scotland and for anybody else that's suffering with their own affliction at this time and uh, we just love you lord we thank you for all of the good blessings of this life we praise you we exalt you and we do so in jesus name amen, amen. okay so we are in romans 12 verse 14 Yes. Should I back up to the... Yes, please paragraph? do. Whatever paragraph you got. Okay, nine. Um, love must, must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need practice hospitality. 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Okay. Boy, is that easy. Uh, no, maybe not. Maybe not. 12.14. Paul goes to the words of Jesus today. In Luke 6, 27 and 28, we read, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. I don't know if you are like me, but I have a really tough time fulfilling that uh, commandment. And as I said, Jesus, obviously speaking to Israel under the law, Paul is repeating it, and therefore it is prescriptive for us. And it would make sense to do this anyway, but it's a very difficult thing to do. And as I said here, this may be one of the most difficult of all of Paul's admonitions, but it is what we are asked to do. This is particularly so when we see that Jesus first spoke the words to us. To curse someone is, in essence, requesting their condemnation. But which one of us wasn't first facing that fate? Remember John 3, 18, all right? If you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. We're already facing condemnation, so here we are facing that, and the Lord gave us mercy instead. Um, and yet we are pleased, I'm certain of that, that God has shown mercy on us. Shouldn't we likewise share the feelings towards the lost? And I have to think that when I get really angry at something and I think I just don't even want to tell that guy about Jesus because he's such a jerk. And then I think, you know what? That was me. I was in the same position. You know, you, you got to just keep reminding yourself of these things. Uh, these words, however, are often used as a pretext by those who would rip it out of its context to imply that we cannot call sin as sin. This is the kind of verse, especially quoted by Jesus, that people will take and they'll Non-Christians use it against Christians all the time. And they'll say, do not judge, and all these verses that are taken completely out of the context, and they post you on your Facebook wall as if you can't say any issue about morality or about somebody that is actively doing something that is wrong. Okay? Does it go contrary to what was just said in nine? Apps, it goes contrary to it 100%. We are to call out sin as it is. So obviously we have to keep things in the context. Right. 
Exactly. The implication then is that we are to bless any action. Um, is uh, let me read that again. The implication then is that we are to bless any action by anyone without considering either the perverse nature of the indiv individual or the action. If you're doing what I said in that first sentence, where people say they use it as a pretext, it, where we cannot call sin sin. Okay. Further, it is used as a tool against protecting oneself or taking any necessary action to guard against whatever harm may befall the believer. This is not the intent of these words. It is a clear and concise statement. We are to bless those who persecute us, not to curse them. This is no way implying that the Christian cannot at the same time use whatever means is available to secure themselves from others or to call the sinner out in his sin. Okay, everybody got that? If somebody is harming us, we have a right to defend ourselves. If somebody comes against the United States of America, America can defend itself. If somebody is sinning, we have a right to call out their sin. This is not limiting here. It's just simply, some, simply something that we are required to do. Following the book of Acts, there are times when the apostles will do just these things. Throughout the epistles, we are given instructions into what is and isn't acceptable behavior, as you said in verse 9, and even demonstrations of how to confront offenders. There is a balance which needs to be maintained, and one cannot pursue this balance without being prepared through knowing the word and adhering to its precepts. Okay, everybody got that? It's very clear, it's very straightforward, but you don't let people take these verses and use them against you to silence you. You have a right to uphold scripture and all the other areas where it tells you to do it. Uh, what does it say in uh, uh, Titus? He tells the Titus to rebuke the people sharply in uh, uh, Crete, right? The culture demanded it. The people weren't paying attention, and he told them to do it. So there are things that we can do. There are things that we are not to do. But we have, you know, have to work the two out together. In the end, we are to do exactly though what the verse says, and to bless our enemies and not to curse them, etc. Life application. Though it is a difficult challenge, it is one prescribed to the believer to bless and not to curse those who persecute us. God is the avenger of his people, and we need to make room for his wrath as we pray for those who come against us. Okay, fine line there. I know there are times where you just want to really curse at somebody for what they've done, and instead we should bless them. And at the same time, if we confront them, we can confront them about their sin. Okay, so take both sides, ensure that you're following it, things in context, and don't let people, especially on Facebook, silence you over something that's taken out of context. What? is the verse where it says, as long as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Yeah, where is that? As long as it depends, I, I know the point you're making though, is right. there's a it's point like, where you can no longer right. live in peace with people. As long as it depends on yeah, me. As long as it depends on me, because other people, peace. that's if right, other people are not willing to live in peace with you, then you have a right to call them out on it. Absolutely. But in the process, you bless them, don't curse them. Verse twelve, fifteen. go ahead. Oh, yes. This, this curse. Are you is this calling down a curse? Well, yeah, because if you're blessing somebody, then the opposite would be calling down a curse. Calling down a curse. Absolutely. Like uh, uh, Shemini or whatever it was that was calling down a curse on David, or do you think he was really cursing? Shemier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he was calling down a curse. He was cursing him, and he was he was certainly saying, you know, you're. He, he, 
that would be a good example of it right there. He was cursing David. He was saying, you know, you son of a dog or whatever, you know, the, the things he was saying. He was kicking sand at him, and he was just generally cursing throwing him. Throwing rocks at him. Yeah, throwing <laughs> rocks at him and all of that. Yeah. So, uh, and what did, uh, uh, you know, the um, John and his brother, they called him Boanerges, remember, oh, Sons yeah. of Thunder, and they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the people of Samaria, was it? Wherever. Anyway, my brain is not working well today. So, anyway. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it just think it, if you're going to bless somebody, exactly the opposite is the context. You're cursing them. Okay. So don't call down curses on them. Don't curse people. Send a blessing instead. Lord bless you. You know, and I got to tell you what, that can be the most effective thing to get people riled up when they're already in a huff and you say, Lord bless you. I'm telling you what, it is exactly what Paul says is putting, uh, or, uh, you know, hot coals on their head. Absolutely. That, that will quite often do exactly what you want to do they'll huff off in a, a steam but it's all over when you do that so okay go ahead rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn okay or this one says weep with those who weep okay this admonition is straightforward and something anyone can and should both grasp and participate in Paul gives a life example of this same thought to the Corinthians in his first letter to them. Let me take you there really quickly. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says. Um, let's see here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Okay, so he's saying that if you somebody suffers, suffer with them. If they weep, weep with them. And you're, you're doing it with them. You're participating in it with them. Rejoicing with those who rejoice develops a bond of love simply because it shows that what makes them happy also makes us happy. Okay, if you think about it and you do that with somebody, even if your heart really isn't in it, but you rejoice with them, you start to feel the happiness. I mean, it, it, and it, the same thing as mourning with somebody. You know, you may not care about whatever their loss was, but when you mourn with them, you start to become empathetic with them. It just is the natural state of human beings. So we unite, unite in a new way when we share such uplifting times. In the same way, when someone has tragedy, loss, or difficulty, then showing empathy to their situation can only increase the bond between the two though it may be delayed more th uh, than during times of joy. You know, when you're having a time of joy, then the bond grows very quickly. Sometimes grief overwhelms them wanting to bond with anybody. They just want to stew in their misery. And that's what you're there for, is to help them through that and mourn with them. Grief often takes more time to process than joy because grief can completely overwhelm every other emotion and thought. This is why it's so important to demonstrate empathy at these times. Doesn't matter what the issue is, but somebody emailed me this morning with something really horrifying that happened in her family. And, you know, all I could do was just mourn with her. That's all I could do. You know, it's by email, they're in a completely different location, but it's something that you can do. You let them know that I, I really feel bad for you. You know, I understand your situation and it, I know that people need that bonding when they're in a time of really grief. And, uh, uh, so it, it's just something that we should do. Jesus gave us examples of both, both of these for us to emulate. When he gave the disciples authority and power as laborers in his ministry, we are told that they came back with joy. Remember, they were rejoicing at the marvels which had occurred. This then is noted. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. So he was doing the same thing as they were. He was rejoicing because of their joy. In the same way, those who were at the tomb of... 
Lazarus, thank you, were in mourning. Jesus likewise mourned with them, showing empathy for their plight. In the account, it says, Jesus wept. That's John eleven thirty five. If the Lord can so fellowship with his people, then we can and should as well. Let us endeavor to participate in the joys and sorrows of those who are united in the body. Life application, we're done. I mean, we got just a lot of short little uh, verses here instead of chapter 9 through 11 was really deep stuff. It took a long time to get through a single verse, but this goes rather quickly. Life application, demonstrating empathy at sadness and showing joy at others' victories and times of happiness can only build them up. Remember that at some point, each one of us will have the same times of joy or sadness, and we will hope for fellowship at those times too. Okay, it is uh, six, or I'm sorry, 527, and Pat and Cindy are not here, so apparently they're not going to be here tonight, but just so you know, Pat turned, they're what? Okay, that's that's why I figured this late, but it was her birthday this week, and I didn't know it until the older. She's 92, so if anybody uh, wants her number, give me a call, and I'll give you her number, give her a call, or send her an email, whatever, because uh, that's a real, uh, 92 a is a, that's a milestone. So anyway, I was hoping she'd show up so we could stop and sing her happy birthday, but they're not here. Anyway, okay, so 1216. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I have no problem with this one at all. Uh, you've been out with me when I've cleaned them all. <laughs> I, have, I have no problem fitting in. Let me read it out loud uh, from this one. Uh, be of the same mind toward one another. I might not always do that. Do not set your mind on high things. That doesn't happen with me. I can assure you of that. But associate with the humble. I, I'm assure you that the most humble guy that walks in the 7-Eleven is elevated above me when I'm working. And do not be wise in your own opinion. I, I just, I have no problem with this one at all. I, I, the clothes I wear don't matter to me, you know, whatever. Some of these other ones I really struggle with, but being, you know, as low as you can go doesn't bother me at all. Okay, the first part of this verse has several possible interpretations. One is that we should empathize with one another. A second possibility is that believers should be agreed in their opinions about matters. A third possibility is that believers should seek the same thing for others that they seek for themselves. Based on the translator, one will inevitably get a different meaning. To be of the same mind is to show unity of mind regardless of the overall intent behind the words. And like I said, you can have translations of Bibles that are completely different, and yet the intent of the original could be either. So it's not that one is wrong and one is right. It is that, you know, we have uh, sentences that we say in America, and it's very hard to figure out. I'll give you an example, just so you know. Just speaking something out loud can change the meaning of a sentence. So we'll think of a sentence like, I didn't say that she said that he did it, okay? I didn't say that she said that he did it. Okay, that means I'm saying somebody else did. I didn't say that she said, right? Okay, now you know that I'm adamantly saying that I didn't do it. I didn't say that she said that she said that he did it, right? Now it's implying that I might have written it down and passed a note to somebody. I didn't say that she said. So you see, every time you change one word of that sentence, you get a completely different meaning, okay? That's what happens in the Greek as well. And so uh, I, when people get stuck on a single translation, they have really erred in their, their thinking because it could be something entirely different. And usually in the Bible when this happens, 
they are both positives. In other words, you're not going to get a contradiction in Scripture ever. You're going to have two positive things, and Paul could actually have been thinking of both of them. Okay, so don't worry about those type of things. Don't argue over those type of things. All three of those that I just read you are possible. Okay, so um, as I said, to be of the same mind is to show unity of mind regardless of the overall intent behind the words. After that, Paul says that we shouldn't set our mind on high things. The purpose of his words here that we shouldn't strive for what is considered of worldly importance. Seeking after wealth will only bring troubles, okay? Let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6 real quickly, just to read you what it says there. Well, I went too far. 1 Timothy, Hebrews, how much? Oh, I, well, it would help if I got in the right book in the first place. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, verse 10. What does it say there? It says, um, well reported for you. Is that the verse I want? Hang on a second here. 1 Timothy, um, hang on, where was I? Uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 6.10, that's right. Well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lost strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Okay? This is a person that's been doing humble service, okay? So, um, looking uh, to be around the famous is a dead-end street as well. The majority of famous people live by the world's standards, and therefore our attention can only get misdirected from what is right and honorable, okay? Something else about the famous. Who is the, the people with the, that are the most basket case in the entire universe? Because all you have to do is just look at the lives of Hollywood stars, right? They're famous. They have all the money that they could ever want in their life. They have people fawning over them continuously. They've been through 17 marriages. They're Kids are all on drugs, they're on drugs, they're in counseling, they're in Scientology, they're in all kinds of crazy things. I wouldn't want to be like them. Why would anybody want to be like that, right? But that seems to be what everybody thinks is the ideal. Further, when attempting to get into the presence of royalty or fame, we may find ourselves shamed in the process. This is well reflected in Proverbs 25. So let me take you back to Proverbs. Your really. reference a while ago was 1 Timothy 16. Yeah. The love of money. Oh, thank you. The love of money. I was uh, go ahead and read that out loud. Okay. Well, the love of money is the root of all. Uh, all I must have been in five ten. The yeah. okay. Anyway, well, I was looking at the other one where it's saying not associate Some with high people. Okay. Okay. The love of money. Let me go back there and read that so people aren't confused. Seeking after wealth will only bring trouble. The love of money. Thank you. I'm glad you got that. I was probably looking at five ten because when I do that. It'll have the six at the top of the page, and I quite often do that, so I was on 510 or whatever. Anyway, um, Proverbs chapter 25. Thank you for catching me on that. Proverbs 25, um, let's see here, 6 and 7. Do not exalt, exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen, which is kind of what Jesus alluded to as well. It's better to start in the low position and to be called up to the higher position than it is to stand in the higher position and find out that they say you need to go sit over there, right? Instead of looking for fame and to the famous, Paul instructs us to associate with the humble. With humble people, there is no pretense, no favoritism, no arrogance. Instead, there is a calm life of one who understands his position and acts without contempt for others. In the end, associating with such a person is far more pleasing and uplifting than the constant maneuvering of seeking high society. 
another thing that just came to mind, a little bit different, but it's the same general thought, is I said this to somebody just this morning, the happiest people that I ever saw in my whole life on this planet, as far as families were concerned, were when I was in Thailand and the people that lived on the river, they had little shacks and they lived right on stick shacks above the river. They were so poor that they had one pair of clothes each and that was it. And those kids were all happy. The family was content if you went in, they treat you like a king, right? And yet they were the poorest people you could ever know, just completely content people. And you go into Publix and you got a kid that's sitting in one of those uh, little carts, you know, it looks like a car and they're grabbing at everything and mom says no and the kid starts crying and throwing stuff in and they're miserable miserable people and you think why would i want that when i could have something completely like the people in thailand where they're just happy all the time right ignorance is bliss i guess i don't know whatever it's the fellowship family fellowship they say that the people in japan uh, okinawa where my wife is from live longer than any other people on the planet there are more people over 100 on okinawa than anywhere else and they did a study as to why. And they said, well, they eat a lot of fish. Well, they eat a lot of pork too, right? They, you know, when they have their cookouts and stuff, they always have pigs and stuff, but whatever. They eat a lot of fish. They say that's one of the things. And they say um, they, uh, uh, there was an, oh, uh, something else. But the third thing they said they thought was the most uh, important was that they were very social. They'd walk around and visit each other in the neighborhood. They were close in the family and just very social. Barefooted. Yeah, and barefooted probably, which is a huge <laughs> bonus. Anyway, yeah, so, you know, it, just getting along with people is just something that's good. And when you don't, all it does is cause stress. That's all it does. When you don't get along with somebody, unless you're a narcissist and you can just sleep through that kind of stuff, when somebody argues with you, I don't know about you, but I go to bed and it goes through my head all night long. My wheels are turning and I think, what could I have said differently? And, or why did they do that? And it just makes you old, which is obvious. I'm only 32, so <laughs> whatever. Okay, so um, let's see here. Where are we? Um, the verse finishes with, do not be wise in your own opinion. This fits nicely with the thought of Romans 12, verse 3, which said that one should not attempt to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. We talked about that already. Whether it is regarding matters of faith, industry, innovation, strength, or some other ability, it was given by grace, and it can end in a fleeting moment. Think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. All of that strength and power, and now he's flabby, and he's had a heart attack, and he's gone completely over the deep end. I mean, he's just a lunatic now. So, I mean, all of these things are temporary. There's no point in saying, I'm really a great person, because someday it's all going to be gone. All of it. Strong men will grow weak, invention will become passe, agility will cease with age, and so on. As surely as strawberries are sweet, once again we start acting wise in our own opinion, and we will be humbled. Rather than following this avenue, Solomon gives us differing advice. Let me take you here to Proverbs chapter 3, and I'll show you what Solomon says for us to do. Proverbs Psalm. 47, 48. There we go. Okay, Proverbs chapter 3, and he says here, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Good job, Solomon, right? In the end, acknowledging the Lord, acting humbly, associating with the humble, and having unity of mind with others, other believers is far better of an approach. It will lead to a much fuller life and one which is destined for heavenly rewards as well. 
life application. Humility is something which is in short supply in our society. Isn't that true? I typed this, what, four years ago? It's much worse today than it was. But it is a treasure which will pay heavenly rewards. When arrogance steps in, there is no room for exalting the Lord. So be humble and set your eyes on that which will be pleasing to your heavenly Father. Good stuff. 17? 17. If and you guys have a question, you know, I, it's just kind of one way here tonight, other than Burke. Just a comment, but, but the uh, live in harmony with one another. Uh, she got a really good question now. Are we talking everybody? Or are we talking Christians? Are you, what are you saying? Just all these admonitions. Oh, well, well I, get to that in the next verse. Yes, we are. Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> we will, uh, but go ahead. Go ahead, and we'll get to thing, it. Though, living in harmony with one another. Okay. If I know you're a Christian and you know I'm a Christian, we both believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and you're a Yankee fan and I'm a Red Sox fan, what takes priority? I mean, there, like, I'm sorry, there's no start? fellowship between Yankees and Red Sox. That. I'm sorry. I understand that, but I, like, I, uh, that's the harmony part. It's like, all right. You know what? You're... You just blow it off. Yeah. But, I, you know, one of the things that you're talking about things that are separate from the Bible, and you're both Christians. Right, but but I, harmony is harmony. Harmony is harmony. But I have seen much more destructive fighting between Christians, well, especially over minor issues, minor issues than anybody on the outside. I mean, Democrats and Republicans today don't get along in a big way. But I have seen much more infighting between Christians than that. You know, I, I believe in a pre-trib rapture, and you're going to hell because you believe in a, and they defriend each other. That is absolutely crazy. That is absolutely insane. There is a doctrinal difference, which is not salvific in nature. Not only is it not salvific, but it's just something that hasn't happened yet. And they're reading the exact same verses, and they're coming to another conclusion. If they disagree, just blow it off. You know what? They're wrong about mid-trib. They're wrong about post-trib. I'm not going to fight with people over that. I, I, I know that it's pre-trip. I know what the Bible says. But they want you to. Well, that's right. There are people that will just simply come onto your post on Facebook and they will egg you on. And the worst one is where you will have a proposition in a post and they'll come down and they will change the proposition in the, the thread itself. And they expect you to suddenly change what you're saying when it has nothing to do with the issue you're talking about. Don't get caught in that. Don't get caught in people that have their own little agenda to start sidetracking people from what the issue is. Stick to whatever the first issue is and, and don't argue beyond that. Give your thoughts on that and, you know, there's no point in calling somebody a heretic unless it's real heresy, okay? Bad doctrine is bad doctrine. You can tell them that, but yeah, there are so many finger pointers out there. That's all they do all day long is point their fingers at other Christians, and they divide, they divide, they divide, they divide over things that should not have any division at all, okay? There are a lot more bigger fish to fry within Christian circles than the little nitpicky things that they get onto. But whatever, you know, everybody's got their own agenda, so go ahead, 17. 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Okay, that's pretty close, a little different wording, but it's close. Uh, what a difficult thing this verse asks. Repay no one evil for evil equates to turn the other cheek. That's pretty much what it equates to. For a good analysis of this directly from Jesus, you can refer to Matthew 5, 38 through 48, okay? That's the Sermon on the Mount, and well, let's read it, whatever. 5, 38 through 40, it'll only take us a second. And uh, what's that? Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 5. We'll go there. It's not going to take us too long, and we're not going anywhere anyway. So 38, 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is what the law says. Okay, that's the, anybody know what that's called? The law of Lex Talionis. Okay, it's like for like retribution. Okay, so um, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. He is not, by the way, saying not to observe the law of Moses. He was not telling them to violate the law. There is a standard, and if somebody violates the standard of the law of Moses, they are to be held accountable. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an individual grudge against somebody, okay, rather than what is proper under society. When it, society says that somebody has done something wrong, you go to the judges, and the judges make the determination. And from there, you uphold what the judges say, okay? People will use that against Jesus and say, well, he's saying, you know, he's telling them to violate the law of Moses. He's not. He's talking about an individual thing that's happened to somebody. Is it your agenda to have that person's tooth knocked out because he knocked out your tooth? Okay, you can rightfully do that, but he's saying that there is something beyond the law itself. Okay, don't resist an evil person. He's not contradicting the law by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, he upheld the law in everything that he did and at all times. Okay, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. There was a, a boxer that uh, he uh, was answered the door and this one guy that just hated him found out that he had turned into a christian and he went in and he went up to the boxer and he went and punched him on the right cheek and the boxer he turned his face the other way and the guy punched him on the left and he said well the lord's given me no further direction <laughs> anyway that's kind of funny well, i heard that from adrian rogers years ago and i said that that is yeah, well thought out. Anyway, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We had a lot of that in the past 24 hours. We had people getting rain here and not getting it here. And then that guy doesn't deserve it. I, why is my yard dry? You know, so he just sends it where he wants. I, Sarasota has been like a little pocket of rain everywhere, you know, just from time to time over the past two days. Um, he says, uh, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet the brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God is merciful. We should show mercy, okay? But at the same time, we are not obligated to not adhere to the laws of the land and if we have a suit against somebody there's nothing wrong with that brothers we're not supposed to a christian isn't supposed to take another christian into court there's nothing that says that if something harmful happens to you in public that you don't have a right to be fixed i mean if they did something that was negligent you have a right to that so you have to be careful not to take the what is the bible says too far but you're not to go suing other brothers you're supposed to take it to the church there is a problem with that, though. Mm -hmm. It's because you got 400 churches in a town, 
and this guy might be a Jehovah's Witness, and he says he's a Christian. Well, he's not. Do I have a right to sue him? This guy is a Lutheran, okay? He goes to his church, and he doesn't care, right? I'll just move to another church. If my church says, you know, you you got to pay this guy's fine. I mean, the church finds him. He, well, he just moves to another church. So it's very hard to get, you know, justice in the way that Jesus said in the, uh, the Gospels and the way that Paul refers to in the uh, epistles, because there's not just one church in a town anymore. There are just people that are all over the place. There's so you have to use discernment. Too. What's that? There's other problems too. The Jehovah's Witnesses are having a big problem them doing exactly that. Oh. Bringing it to the elders. Oh, yeah. And like all these women have been like... Women people. and children. Yes. Children it's have like, been abused and they've hidden it. And that's been happening in the JWs for eons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's coming out now, especially now it's coming out. Because they just say, well, he's an elder and we can't do that. And so they, they handle it among themselves and come to find out they've been doing what the Catholic Church has been doing for hundreds of years. So, yeah, there are problems with these things. And this is a fallen world. All we can do is take godly advice, seek the Lord's word, and apply it to ourselves as best we can. I mean, that's just what we are to do. So anyway, um, where was I? We're in 1217 still. And as this is a part of Paul's prescriptive writings here, repaying no one evil for evil, all right, these words are intended to be followed despite being contrary to our normal human nature. By staying in the word, fellowshipping with others, talking to the Lord continuously, and praying without ceasing, this high and lofty goal can be attained. But with the distractions in the world, constantly tugging at us from every direction, it truly is a difficult task. In the end, repaying evil for evil is simply producing a second evil. It's like people say, well, Jimmy Carter, I said in that prophecy update a week ago where he says, oh, abortion is okay in certain circumstances, you know, rape and incest. No, all you're doing is you're producing a second evil. You're not negating what happened at all. You're not doing anything about the first crime. You are just committing another crime against God by murdering that unborn human. So there is no reason. You know, the only time that I could say if somebody came to me and said, what do I do about aborting this child? I've been told that if I have this child, I am going to die. If I don't have, uh, you know, it, it, when either the child is going to die or the parent is going to die. When you are faced with that. Now you've got to make a decision, don't you? And I've actually read about people that have said, my child is going to live and I am going to die. Okay, I've read about that. Okay, there are other people that say that I'm married, I can have another child. And, you know, I'm not the one that is going to give you any advice on that other than to say, you're just going to have to go to the Lord in right. prayer but on that. that. Like one in one trillion. One in one trillion, literally. So, but they, they'll use that as an excuse. Say, well, what about if the mother's going to die and the baby? It's like, well, okay, how often does that happen? Yeah, how often does it happen? It doesn't mean that we should have a law in the land that says we can have murder on, a, on demand because of this issue. Absolutely. That is something that should be completely contained within that family the husband, the other children, whatever, they need to come to a resolution with that. You know, if she's got three other children, they're going to be without a mother. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I have no way to be able to say this is the right thing to do on that particular issue. I, I, I don't. Today, I, I don't see that. No, yeah, with medicine today, there's always going to be a way that they can get around that. There's always going to be. So absolutely god brings them both through go to the lord in prayer you know lay it at his hands lay it at his feet and leave it in his capable hands and that is all you can do with those things and 
like I said, I'm not a specialist where I can say one way or another, you are doing wrong because there's going to be a death one way or another. It's a really tough thing. But I have heard of those circumstances and I've read about them. So all we can do is just leave that kind of thing in the Lord's hand. But we're not here to produce a second evil simply by showing evil for evil. If the first evil was wrong, a second one doesn't make the first right. It only adds to the evil. And next we're told to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. That's what Paul says. This thought comes from Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. So you can see he is probably, you know, when you read Paul, you can almost tell what book of the Bible he was reading that night in his prison cell. It's, it's just amazing how he'll, he'll get thoughts in his head and you'll say, well, it's kind of clustered around the book of Isaiah today. And uh, so I could be completely wrong in that, but it just kind of strikes me that he does this from time to time, where he, he tends to gravitate towards one particular book. But you know what? When somebody asks you a question about, you know, uh, the Bible, they send me an email and I may go to one book and I'll answer it. And the next week I can go to another book and I'll find a suitable answer out there because the Bible never contradicts itself. It's always harmonious and it will always give you the answer you need if you look, you know, long enough and hard enough. But anyway, we're in Proverbs 3. It says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and men. By living with mercy and truth as lamps on our path, we will be able to use them when strangers step in our way. When they look to harm, we should return with peace. When they bring a curse, we should utter forth a blessing. And should they refuse our graces, we should stand ready and be willing to offer a second helping, which is really difficult. I got to tell you, especially in the world of road rage, by writing them now on the tablet of our hearts, we will be prepared in advance when the calling comes. Okay, if anybody says they failed in here, don't feel bad about it. I failed in this a million times as well. But the more that we read the word, the more that we think about the word when we're out working and just, you know, talking to the Lord, it's going to dwell. What does Paul say? Let the word of God dwell in you richly. That's right. In other words, just contemplate it, meditate on it. If not, you're already defeated. You're already defeated. It's the word of God and clinging to the power of the spirit that is going to get you out of that. So it's the only way we can do it. Anyway, it should be noted that to have regard, as Paul says, for good things is not speaking of what man determines is good. The thing man determines is good is a bad, bad standard to rely on. Rather, we are to have regard for good things which are noted in Scripture and to have that regard, as Paul says, in the sight of all men. We take the Scripture, apply it to our lives, and have that in the sight of all men. They are to see our conduct toward that which is truly good. And the intention of the term in the sight of all men is that we are to apply this precept at all times and in all places. In other words, we're not to act rightly just when men are watching, but as if men are always watching. Always. We're always to have that attitude, just in case. And I can assure you, I fail at that one as well. I mean, I, when I think nobody's watching, I may do something I probably would never do in front of people. It's just human nature, and we shouldn't have that attitude. We should always try to do the right thing all the time, all the time. And life application, and I see Burke is looking for something. You got it ready? Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, stature, and in favor with, with God, God and men. Absolutely. Which is, you know, that's a wonderful verse for this, but it's also a great verse, if you think about it, for um, the attributes of God, right? Can God learn anything? No, no absolutely not. He's all-knowing, right? 
but Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he could learn, right? He's the God man. Could, does God cry? God is impassionate. He has no passion at all. There's no change in God. If God changes, if he gets angry, if he gets sad, if he cries, any of those things, it's not the God of the Bible. People really struggle with that. And I understand that. Every time I say this, somebody sends me an email and says, what are you saying, God? God does not change. He is love. Okay. We change in relation to God, but Jesus wept. He's showing his humanity. Okay. That's a wonderful verse for that. Understanding the nature of Christ. He is fully God. He is fully man. His divine side does not change. His human side developed. Okay. So understanding that God does not change in any way, shape, or form. If there is a change in God, then there is something associated with that change. What happens when there's change? Time. That's right. God is the creator of time. God is not in time. He is not a part of time. If God changes, if he weeps, if he gets angry, if he does any of those things, there is time associated with it. There is a, a movement of time. And it is not God. Okay? God is and we have to understand that everything that we perceive is for our benefit. It's not for his. He doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. And until we can understand that, we will have a misunderstanding of what God is like. Okay? God sent Jesus so that we could interact with him in a way that will last forever and forever and forever. He will ceaselessly and endlessly reveal himself to us through Christ. That is how it works. So also reveal himself to us through his creation and through his word. These are the ways God reveals himself. But the main way that he will reveal himself, who he is, his character, his nature, everything about him is through Christ. Okay? That's what we have to understand that. It's very important. If somebody says that they have seen God, they ain't seen God. Okay? Unless they've seen Jesus. All right? If you say, Peter says, well, I saw Jesus. I stood there with him. Then he can say, I saw God, but it's God incarnate. It's not God in his fullness. It's God revealing himself in the person of Jesus. Anyway, great verse for that. Um, so where are we? Um, uh, oh, yeah. Always watching. Life application. Repaying evil for evil can only lead to an unhappy result. Even if we think we may only come, uh, even if we think we have obtained the upper hand, in the end, we will always reap a negative reward. And that negative reward may only come when we stand before the Lord, but it is coming. It is incumbent on us to live without acting in revenge. As hard as this is to accomplish, it is the right thing, and it is the right avenue for peace in this life and favor from the Lord at our judgment. Very hard words to do. I know that. Yes? Explain how the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. And he is. Because we have moved from the good side of him to the bad side of him. He cannot fellowship with us. God is love. If we are wicked, then he cannot be loving towards them. He is love, but that cannot be expressed to him. Remember, I've showed you this before. You've got a column standing here. I'm on God's good side, and I'm on his bad side. Okay? He is going to demonstrate wrath towards me because I'm not on his good side. He's going to demonstrate love towards me. The love doesn't change. Okay? God is love. The column doesn't move. We move in relation to him, okay? That is the way that God is. When we see the word Lord in the Old Testament, that is speaking of Christ, okay? Whatever you want to say, the pre-incarnate Christ or the eternal Christ, whatever. And in the New Testament, Jesus comes and fully reveals himself. But Jesus will get angry at somebody, and he got angry at the, uh, the people in the, the temple, right? Made a whip and pushed them all out. 
Okay, he's displaying anger within the stream of time. God doesn't do that. When it says that God is angry at somebody, it's because that person has moved from positionally in relation to him. God does not change. God is. Like I said, you know, it was three or four sermons ago, maybe five anyway. It doesn't matter which way you look at God, he will always be the same. He is completely unchanging in his nature. There is no shadow or turning in him. Zero. None. He is. Okay? If we can't get that one right, we will always have a faulty view of what God is like. God is, okay? He created out of his wisdom. Everything was created by him. That, you know, that's one of the reasons why I take the Genesis 1, uh, six-day um, creation literally, is because that's what he said in his word. And if it was any other way, I would find it hard to believe that he would put the words in the Bible the way he did. I just would find it hard. Now, people talk about a flat earth, and that can't even be supported from the Bible. The verses ta are taken out of context. They have nothing to do with the issue at hand, okay? It's exactly what the Catholic Church used to try to do when they said, you know, condemn Galileo and Copernicus. They're using the exact same words in the flat earth terminology nowadays that they did back then. They said, well, is it geocentric or heliocentric, right? That was the argument given to Galileo. And they're using the same one nowadays and come to find out that they were wrong in the Catholic Church and they're wrong today because the Bible is not addressing that issue in the way that they are using it. Whereas the six days of creation is very clear. It is very precise. Okay, so God's unchanging nature to me tells me that what we have in the six days of creation is literal and it is actual. If I have misread that in some way and the earth is billions of years old, the Lord will make that known to me later. But I'm going to tell you what. He's expressing uh, the glory of creation. Absolutely. And the wisdom of it. The absolute Doing it in a day. Absolutely. It is, you're absolutely right. He is expressing glory in what he did by doing it in a single day. And that's what it says. And I see no reason to take it any other way. Absolutely none. But like I say, people are going to disagree on that. I'm not going to fight with them. I'm not going to defriend them on Facebook. That is one of those issues that, hey, listen, you're a long-term creationist. I'm going to laugh in your face, and you're going to laugh in mine for being a stupid five-day or six-day creationist. That's fine. We can have fun with it. And like the flat earth people, I have fun with them. You know what? Because they they come at me, and I come back at them, but there's no harm done. It's not like I hate them because of it. It's just it's it's a goofy thing. Whatever. Didn't Job say something? Didn't Job said the circle, circle of the, the earth. earth? And you know, people use that, but it can actually be circle of the earth this way. It can be a globe, whatever, a sphere. People say, well, that literally means sphere. Well, guess what? It means a circle. So if you want to interpret that as a sphere, that's fine. If you want to interpret it as a circle going around this way, that's fine too. But the verses they do use, if you ever want to see them, let me know and I'll send them to you. And then you can go through them. You just, it's not worth wasting your time, but they are way out of context, all of them. Anyway, we'll go on to something else. 1218. Yes, I see that patience is a virtue. Oh, yeah, patience is a virtue. Because, 18 says, if it is possible. If, there it is. There's a verse you were talking as, about. As far as it depends on you, live in, at peace with everyone. With everyone, okay? So it doesn't mean just Christians, which you were asking about. It yes. means everybody. But I would say, especially with Christians, we're to, you know, have uh, an affinity with the brotherhood that we may not have with the rest of the world. But um, uh, you were talking about patience and, and getting to that verse and coming to find out there it is right three verses from where we started. But as I said on Sunday, 
people are always saying, well, you know, I need patience. And how do I pray to the Lord for patience? Well, you say, Lord, I need patience and I need it right now. Oh, yeah. Give it to me right now. Yeah. Pray for patience and ask for it right now. That's what you do. Anyway, okay, 1218. Let's see here. Like, unlike other admonitions, Paul begins with this verse, if it is possible. This should tell us that this will be a most difficult task to fulfill. A few reasons should be obvious. One, not all people want to live peaceably with Christians. And how do we know that in the world today? I mean, it's getting worse and worse. They have harmful intent towards them, thus making peace impossible. So we can't live in peace with them. It's not possible to fulfill the words here. He says, if possible, we can't do it because they don't want to have any fellowship with us. They don't want us to have our rights. They want them taken away. Two, doctrine must take precedence over tolerance. I'll say that again. Doctrine must take precedence over tolerance. Okay. Tolerance, you go to an Episcopal church and what do they do? They say that you can do this and you can do this and this. And No, I'm sorry. That is not authorized in the Bible. The Bible must take precedence over your tolerance of those perverse issues, right? And that's why the Episcopal church is just like, it's on the very last round of the toilet before it goes down into the hole. I mean, it's, it's, it's just done. And we can't have any fellowship with people like that. It's impossible. There was a time when I grew up in the Episcopal church. They were in the Episcopal church. Mom still goes there once in a while. And after this weekend's prophecy update, she's not going to be able to go there anymore. I'm going to tell her, if you go there, you're not going to come to this church anymore because of what they have decided in their their. Yeah, I mean, it's that bad. They have What they had done, and I'll give you a little uh, advance on the prophecy update, is that they had said before, um, you know, homosexuality and homosexual marriages are okay, but you can't force um, a bishop to authorize it within their region, okay? And Sarasota has been in a conservative area. For the Redeemer, they didn't have to do this, okay? Whereas out on Siesta Key, the church I grew up in, they've been doing it for years. I mean, it's, you know pervert palace out there but the um they now can force them to do that uh i i I don't have all the specifics in my head right now but it's one of those things that now if they say we want to have a gay wedding at the church of the redeemer they're going to have a gay wedding at the church of the redeemer okay so i'm going to tell mom you've got to make a choice here what's that Good heavens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. But uh, it, it, she's going to have to make a choice on this. It, it, it's just, it's intolerable for her to go to a church where they allow those things to occur. Force. It's just, it's what? Yeah, force, force. them. Force them on people. Anyway, it's just bad policy. It's bad Christianity. And uh, there we go. Doctrine must take precedence over tolerance. The concept of tolerance in today's society is so awry that everyone is offended by everything. The only thing that isn't tolerated is being intolerant. Yeah, absolutely. It's a confused system which asks all individuals to compromise all morality. However, Jesus tells us differently. We are to never compromise our morals and we are to stand firm on the biblical truth that there is one and only one way to be reconciled to God. That is John 14, 6. It allows no other option. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The most intolerant statement ever uttered by any human being in the existence of this planet was by Jesus. That is John 14, 6, and it sets a dividing line. 
nobody comes to the Father but through me. There's nothing more intolerant than that statement. I don't care what you what you say, any other issue you say, nothing is more intolerant than that particular issue. And yet he said it. That is just the way it is. We must hold to the gospel of Christ, even if it offends. Three, in a fallen world, peace is not attainable in its truest sense. Trials, stresses, weariness, etc., all affect humanity. These external pressures lead naturally to conflict. That's just the way it is. The Christian is asked to live within these difficult circumstances with the intent and with the goal of living peaceably. And so in order to establish sound guidelines, Paul adds in the thoughts, the thought, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. To the greatest measure, the onus is on the believer to effect peace. Sometimes it is impossible, even though many within the faith see it otherwise. That's why we have these churches full of perversion, right? Paul would never ask a believer to compromise their morals or proper doctrine for the sake of either peace or tolerance. He would never do it. He never does do it. Jesus doesn't do it. When either is compromised, the believer becomes an ineffective member of that body and does more harm to the cause than good. However, this is what the liberal arm of Christianity has come to. Don't be swept up in this, but rather stand fast on doctrine and stand first on doctrine, and then exercise the peace which Christ has granted you in order to, if at all possible, to live peaceably with all men. Life application. Some things are not possible for us in this life, but that doesn't give us a blank pass to ignore our responsibility to attempt, at least attempt to meet these lofty goals that are set down for us. It is incumbent on every believer to endeavor to live peaceably with those around us. We may not be able to do it, but that is our calling, okay? I know if you're sitting there saying, that's ah, just not possible with me and my brother or whatever, I'm right there with you. I completely understand that. Thank goodness I have a couple of brothers that I'm very close to. One isn't saved, one is. And, you know, I get along with one in one regard better than the other and the other in another regard with the other. And when we three don't agree on something, one of us tries to mediate between the other two. It, you know, it's the way that families are supposed to work out, but it's not always possible. You got family members that are just completely contrary in everything you say. And then it, how much worse is it outside of the family? I completely understand. So there you go. Verse 19. Have you got a cap for that? You would make me feel so much better if you put a cap on that. You just would make me feel so much better. I, I just could just see something happen. You go, uh, anyway. Um, it just, I, I've been looking at that for about 15 minutes. And finally, I said, I just, uh, I'm breathing heavy. And okay. Um, uh, verse 19. If you knew what it's possible. If yeah, if you knew what was in that, if you knew what was in that, you'd know why I'm saying that. Oh, gosh. Okay, 1219, before we uh, get into a punching fighter. <laughs> Do not take revenge, my friend. Leave room for God's wrath. Uh, it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Hey, and I love that. Does it say, says the Lord in yours? Uh, says the Lord? Well, yeah. actually... Okay, good. It does. All right. I just want to make sure that the quote was the same. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay, here we go. Paul has just written these words to us. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In order to show that this is the proper avenue, 
and that repaying evil for evil is completely unnecessary, he will return again to Scripture with the words, or it is written. He's going back to Scripture. He's done this probably 150 times in the book of Romans so far. You know, it was it, we're up now, we were over 100 uh, classes in the book of Romans. I think it was we're at 103 right now. I, I, I thought we were like in... 20 or something. Yeah, Mike the web guy says, this is about a month ago, he says, you know, you went over 100 uh, classes in Romans. So, we've been in it a while. I had no idea. I never would have guessed that. Anyway, um, for it is written to show us that all will work out as it should. He begins with beloved. By beginning with this, he is making, a, making an appeal to the heart because it is the heart which will inevitably lead us to do wrong if on it, if it is left unattended. And so in a heartfelt appeal, we are now given our instructions. He says, do not avenge yourselves. This is linked right back to repay no one evil for evil. As noted, committing an evil doesn't cover an evil, it simply produces more evil. And to grasp this, I already said this example, and here it's an, a, another verse later, and I'm using the same example. Think of the modern call for abortion. The original demands came under the guise of fairness. Cases of rape and incest certainly necessitated making the procedure legal, right? Once the foot was in the door, it opened the procedure for any and every reason. But even if it were only for cases of rape and incest, it doesn't make it morally right. To murder an innocent human being because of a previous sin was committed does not negate the original sin. It merely adds on another sin. This is the logic of Paul right here in this verse. And so rather than us carrying out vengeance, we are told to give place to wrath. This expression is speaking of divine wrath. Though it may seem slow in coming, it will in fact come. The wicked shall not always prosper, and they will have a day of reckoning. You know, there are certain people in our government, when I see their faces, I think, I, I would just love to see them go to jail. And I know that they're not going to. I know that they're not going to jail for the things that they have done, which are actually treasonous against our nation. I would love to see them. But I always comfort myself with this verse right here. The Lord will avenge them. He will take care of this and all wrongs will be made right. And I, I have to say this verse to myself probably 50 times a day when I'm reading articles for the Prophecy Update and I come across one of their pictures and I have to say, I just would love to see that woman in jail right now. I, you know, I, I didn't, yeah, uh, you know who I'm talking about. I just, oh my goodness. Anyway, so when, what's that? Yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway, it's speaking of divine wrath here. Okay, it's going to come someday. The wicked shall not always prosper and they will have their day of reckoning. And so we're asked to not get in the way of divine wrath, something that we will do when we take matters of vengeance into our own hands. We're just, you're interrupting what God has said, I'm going to take care of. And this is where, you know, good example of this, good example of this is the guy that was up and I think he lived in Tallahassee, may have been Pensacola, but he went and he shot a bunch of, uh, or at least one abortion doctor, may it be a bunch of people in the abortion clinic. Yeah. Okay. It was wrong. I'm sorry. Abortion is legal in this country. We cannot go shooting abortion doctors. It's wrong that we abort. It's something that we should work against in the government. If you have the right to vote, you are negligent in your duty as a citizen to not use that vote. That's all there is to it. But at the same time, we have no right to go in and shoot an abortion doctor who is doing something which is legal in this country. He was wrong. And the last thing he said before they executed him, do you remember what he said? 
He said, in just a moment, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. And that may be true. He may be a saved believer. I have no idea. I never read anything about him personally. But he honestly believed that what he was doing was correct. Okay? He wasn't doing what was correct. He was doing absolutely what was wrong. But he did it with good motives. He had the right intent. I want to preserve the life of these unborn children. Okay? It doesn't make any well, difference. He didn't, he didn't accomplish that. All he did was get some people killed. And he took away their chance of hearing about Jesus. And he also got his own life taken away from him. So the whole thing was just bad. It wasn't good, proper thinking, but this is what some people, you know, they get off on these crazy things and you know, we, we, we're just not to do that, okay? So this is where Paul now cites scripture. He refers back to Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 for a verse from the Song of Moses to justify his stand. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. As surely as evil is committed, the Lord has vowed to repay. There is no getting off scot-free, and all sin will be judged. Because the Lord has spoken, he will follow through. This, then, is an absolute guarantee. So why would we seek to repay evil with evil when his coming judgment of the first evil will suffice? That's what we have to keep reminding ourselves. You know what? There, Timothy McVeigh, I know he wasn't a Christian, but he, he thought he was taking care of an issue by blowing a bunch of people up. You know, they're just government workers. They had nothing to do with what he was angry at. But he thinks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to right a wrong that's been perpetrated in this world by blowing up that Murrah Federal building, right? He killed a bunch of people. There were daycares in there and all that. That's absolutely crazy, right? You're not doing anything. The Lord will take care of it. His vengeance will suffice. And so let it go. Having said this and understanding it to be true, there is still the caution against going too far in the opposite direction. This verse is held up on banners at rallies opposing the execution of criminals. You know, they, you know they'll hold up this banner and other banners, thou shalt not kill, and all these stupid taken out of context verses, and they're not even Christians that are doing these things. They're just standing out there trying to use the Bible against people that hold to the Bible, right? It is often misquoted, being taken completely out of its intended context in an attempt to stand against those who commit violations of set laws. This is an abuse of what is being said here, and it is similar to the incessant and consistent or continuously incorrect use of, as I just said, judge not lest ye be judged. And people put that under your post on Facebook. When you make a post about, gee whiz, this is such a horrible thing that's going on, they say, first thing they do, they jump in. Judge not, lest you be judged. And they're not even Christians. Well, I, mean, I grew up with these kids, you know? Are you, are you a Christian? Yeah. And the answer is like, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. So then what are you, up. yeah, why are you okay. quoting that to me? Go read the rest of the paragraph and you'll see that Jesus makes a moral decision within the same paragraph, right? It makes absolutely no sense, but that's what they want to do. They want to stifle you, okay? It is improper to not execute capital punishment. That's all there is to it. What the Lord said about if a man sheds blood by a man shall his blood be shed. Guess what? That predates the law of Moses. That is the standard of God. When we don't execute criminals in this land, all we are doing is heaping up judgment on this land. It's the only thing we're doing. Okay? It is correct to take cap. You know the argument. Well, what if one of them is innocent? You know what? They went. That's why we have trials. That's why we have appeals, and that's why we have a Supreme Court of the United States of America, and we have the governor of the state that they're in as well. We have all of the ways of looking at these issues and saying, 
if there is a reason to doubt that this person did wrong, we will take care of it. Otherwise, the light's out. That's it. Old Sparky, okay? Jesus never surrendered his rights under the law, but appealed to the law during his trial. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the apostles appeal to the law for their defense and as a just means of settling wrongdoings within society. I'll give you an example right here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me take you there. 1 Peter chapter 2. I hope I get the right chapter this time. I'm going to take you to verse 13. Therefore, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, right? Peter said it in his epistle. He appealed to the law. And I'm not talking about the law of Moses. I'm talking about the law, the law where you exist. This verse today in, that we're looking at right now is speaking of personal vengeance, not the regular and proper execution of sentences within the framework of the governing laws of the land life application, Paul has shown directly from Scripture that the Lord will avenge evil. It is not within our right to do so, except within certain contexts, such as the law of the land. Leave personal vengeance to the Lord, he will repay. And so that's where I get my comfort when I look at these people up in our government and I see their faces thinking they're never going to be judged. You know, I, you always see these hopeful posts by people on Facebook, like they found a document and this is the sure smoking gun and they're going to go to jail for 27 years. And I, I don't even, I never click on them. Yeah. Never. It's not worth it because it is not going to happen. Okay. Anyway, 1220, I think we can get one more in today. Right, but let me just say this. <laughs> yes. We started this book on 630 2016. 2016. Two years and 19 days ago. Wow. So it has. It's been a long time. Wow. I had. I just had no idea. And just you know, you come on Thursday night and you do your stuff and, and you yeah, you know what? They're closing the branch, the Bank of America branch on Siesta Key. The girl that is in there, her name's Deborah. I've been dealing with her for 34 years. Mm -hmm. I've known her most of my life, right? And she was in. Barnett Bank, and then it was Nations Bank, remember that, and then it became Bank of America took it over, okay? Now she has to move out of there. And I said to him, they just, they just remodeled this entire building, and now they're closing. And she said, Charlie, it's been five years. I said, what? Five years? And I just, that was today, I said it to him. I said, I, I thought it was literally like months ago. Man, time just flies when you're having fun. Anyway, so we're losing the bank out there, and we've got over 100 uh, Roman study. 1220. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, there you go. And that's also you can say the Lord bless you, and that'll do it too. Okay. All right. So this is uh, Paul begins this verse. Can we get two verses in? I don't know. We Because we could finish chapter 12 if we do. I'm going to try to go quickly. Paul begins this verse with therefore, which is translated from the word Allah on the, which means on the contrary. He's been speaking of not repaying evil with evil and not taking vengeance on others. Instead of such actions, he says that if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. This is almost a direct quote from Proverbs 25 verse 21. Proverbs is one of the five wisdom books in the Old Testament and is one which peers deep into the state of humanity and then pulls out general applications which can and which should regularly be used by us. 
Many of Jesus' sayings bear directly on the wisdom found there. In intent, his statement in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, follows the same line of thinking now presented by Paul in this chapter of Romans. Let me take you back there, and we're going to read it really quickly. Matthew 5, 43. Yeah, that's why I say it's almost an identical quote from it. He may have taken it from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew or something, but it is very, very close. Um, Matthew 5, 43 says, um, I'm in the wrong book. you got to be in Matthew, not Mark. So give me just a second here. Matthew 8, 7, 6, 5, 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I know we already read that, but it fits just exactly what Paul is thinking of here. What Paul has written here in verse 20 is an obvious, clear, and direct statement that has been the customary practice of many soldiers throughout wars of the past. When the battle is engaged, you fight without holding back. But when the enemy surrenders, what do you do? You patch up their wounds, you give them food, and you treat them decently. This is what America's standard is. That is what the standard of the U, uh, Israel is. And there are a couple other countries that hold to this as well. Most countries don't follow this, even though they are under the Geneva Convention, which mandates it. But there you go. It's the standard of what you would, are to do when you vanquished your enemy. Okay. This type of truly noble behavior has the positive effect of helping to bring nations together after war's end. The nations which failed to do this continue to have long-standing animosities even generations later. But those who practice this attitude can resolve their conflicts and put the past behind them very quickly. We've seen it with Japan. We've seen it with country after country that we've gone to war with, and we've treated them decently. We said, you're going to speak your own language. You're going to have your own constitution. We may tweak it for you, but we're going to do these things. And they're great allies. And we have some long-standing uh, animosities that have gone on now for centuries and centuries and centuries because they did not do that with each other in battle okay they went i'm going to kill all their people after we win they're going to kill all ours and it just it never ends okay so this is the same attitude that we as believers are to have is to take care of the the people after the battle by acting in this manner we are told that in doing in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head Coals of fire are extremely hot and very targeted in where their heat is directed. Unlike an open flame, which is all-consuming, a coal will burn what it touches directly. When coals are heaped on something, that thing will be consumed by the heat, but the surrounding area will remain unaffected. A coal, for example, is an extremely effective means of torture. The idea here isn't that of actual torture, but that the same intended effect will result. Just as heaping coals on someone's head is intended to obtain a complete change in the person, the kindness expected of the believer towards the enemy will achieve the same. The very notion of kindness to one's bitter enemy is so contrary to what they would expect that when it is received, their complete change in attitude is almost certain. And we're not going to have time for another verse. We're going to have to finish. So life application, as difficult as it is to bless one's foes, lovingly care for one's enemies and willfully withhold the returning of evil for evil it is what we are called to do 
in the end, by taking this course, the change in the one who we direct these favors to will hopefully result in their conversion. Such a change has eternal value, so let us pursue these difficult avenues. Now, I'll give you, because we have two more minutes, I will give you an example of exactly that that I heard in a Billy Graham crusade one time. If you heard the crusade, you'll remember immediately the terrible dunker. Anybody remember when he spoke about him? Okay, he... Uh, he spoke about a guy in World War II that was called the Terrible Dunker. His name was Dunker. He was a German guy, and he abused these people in uh, 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 the concentration camps. And anyway, the war ended, and he, uh, he uh, met one of the people that uh, there was a guy. I think he moved to America, and he, he always hated this guy. He just bore him the greatest anger and the greatest hatred, but he eventually became a Christian. And he somehow met again years later the terrible Dunker, this guy that had just abused him, just did terrible things to him. And he walked up to him and he says, I want to know, I want you to, I, I want you to realize I forgive you for what you've done because of my, my faith in Christ. And he, this guy was completely amazed. He said he, he couldn't believe, how could you do this? He says, I can't. He says, I can't do it on my own, but I can do it because of Christ. And apparently, if I remember the sermon right, and if I get it wrong, somebody send me an email. But I think that Dunker became a Christian as well after that because of understanding the grace that was the mercy that was poured out on him. Also, you know, he realized, wow, this is something that I need in my own life. But it's a wonderful story. I remember the sermon. I just don't remember the very end, but I do believe that Dunker became a Christian as well. So. But these last admonitions, trust admonitions. Uh, they are. It's like it's nothing you can do. It's what you just have to lay it right at the Lord's feet, one hundred percent. Yeah, because in our own strength, I I can't do five of the ten things that we did today on a good day, and I can't do all ten of them on a bad day. And that's all there is to it. You're absolutely right. But here we go. Um, we're going to say a prayer, and uh, then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the uh, blessings of this life. We thank you for the chance to meet here, and one person that. Uh, I'd like to lift up right now is Chip, who used to attend our Bible class, and apparently he is not doing well with his cancer, and uh, we would ask that you would comfort him in his, his time of affliction, and uh, we would just ask that you would be merciful to him in his body, and uh, whatever you decide, we would just pray that it would be something that it would be a, a quick and effective uh, healing of your divine hand, or that you would call him home without any continued pain and suffering, because... I, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that state, but we leave this in your hands and we know that uh, uh, you are in control of all things, but we would ask for mercy in this situation either way, and he's your, he's your servant, he does love you, and we pray for him, and uh, Lord, we just commit our, the rest of our week to you and ask that you prosper our way and uh, bless our path with flowers, but if instead we get thorns, just as long as we can praise you through the thorns, that would be enough for us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this up. Did you leave some glasses here, Miss Magnuson? Did you leave these here? No? Okay, somebody did. Go to the break and we got to say goodbye.